Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda, Sri Advaita Garadhara Sivasani Gaura Bhakta Vrinda, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Vakevala, Kalaunastieva, Nastieva, Nastieva, Gatiranyatam. Haribol, dear devotees. It's great to see you all here today. Haribol also to everyone who is perhaps listening to the recording later on. It's been a while since my previous Tatoeve classes, and I was very happy when uh, Maramohan Prabhu kindly invited me to once again share my thoughts with the Sangha. As I may have mentioned in my previous talks, I'm one of those Gita devotees who feel that all the answers to all of life's questions are found in the Bhagavad Gita, and that all the wisdom of the Gaudiya tradition is contained in a condensed format in these 18 chapters. In my previous cha classes, I talked about the second chapter of the Gita, which is the entire book in a condensed format, and therefore, like I said, contains the solutions to all of life's problems. This time I wanted to continue studying the Gita, surprise, surprise. And uh, the title of my talk today is Bhagavad Gita on the Road, Controlling the storm in mind. As some of you may know, uh, over the last 15 years, my partner Kamalaksha and I have done several long cycling trips in different parts of the world. Some paddling as well, but cycling's really been our main um, outdoor activity. Last year, we cycled almost 3,000 miles or nearly 5,000 kilometers in Canada and the US riding from Montreal to New York with a very long detour to Labrador, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. These long trips have been huge learning experiences for me. They really changed the way I see the world, other living beings, but especially myself. And that's kind of the background uh, of what I wanted to talk about today. My friend Brigupad Prabhu, whose steadiness in spiritual practice is a constant inspiration to me, once said that it's easy to think that you're very unselfish when you live alone. But when you share your home with someone else, your selflessness and flexibility are tested on a daily basis. And you might learn something about yourself. It's been a long while since I lived by myself, but uh, and maybe I have a kind of a romantic memory of that time of my life being very well organized and it's certainly more chaotic today but, but perhaps I've learned something about sharing and, uh, and flexibility over, over the years that I've shared my home with, with Kamalaksha. I've often had the same kind of thoughts when it comes comes to controlling the mind. It's easy to think that you're quite tolerant of difficulties and unattached to material comforts when you're living in a nice house with central heating and running hot water, a five minute walk from a big grocery store, like we are here at home. But a cycling trip will put you to a test, exposing you to all kinds of hardships, 
many of them caused by weather conditions. On our cycling trips, I've cursed the wind, I've cried in the rain, I've almost passed out in the sun and thrown tantrums at my traveling companions. Sitting here in my comfortable home, I can be all philosophical and talk to you about emotions and weather being uh, both coming and going and, and the importance of distancing ourselves from such passing conditions. But just a few days ago, I was struggling miserably on my bike in headwind and, and I felt like a total failure. The problem with me is that I'm not just miserable because the weather is bad and I'm not and I'm cold and freezing or moving at the speed of a toddler who learned to bike just this spring. But the real problem is that, that the, I'm also angry at myself for being angry at the weather, because in my mind, that means that I've failed both as a cyclist being slow and as a yogi being unable to control my mind. So that makes me a double failure. So I'm angry at myself for being angry at myself, basically. And uh, I've always found it interesting how the forces of nature, such as stormy winds, which always really test my peace of mind, are also repeatedly used as a metaphor for the uncontrolled and restless mind in the Gita. For instance, in the second chapter, in verse 67, Krishna warns us about the intelligence being lost as the mind wildly runs after the senses. Indriyaman hi charatam yanmano nuvidhyat tad asyaharati pragyam vayurnavam ivambasi. Whichever of the rowing senses the mind runs after, that sense carries away one's intelligence just as the wind carries away a ship on water. This is such an accurate description of the cyclist losing their cool as the wind comes and blows away both their physical strength and their mental determination. The Gita really comes alive for me on the road. When I think about verses such as this, and I'm constantly amazed by how accurately how well this ancient text knows me. Like I said, chapter two is the entire Gita in a condensed format. Uh, and further on in, in chapter six, Krishna will expand on this theme on the theme of controlling the mind and offers us some more ni nice weather related uh, verses, metaphors. So I've chosen some verses from, from chapter 6 that I want to share with you today. Chapter 6 is an interesting point in the Gita in the sense that, as you may have heard Guru Maharaj say, the Gita is divided in three sections of six chapters each. So the first six chapters represent the yoga psychology of the Gita. The middle six chapters represent the theology and the final six chapters represent the metaphysics physics of the Gita. So now we're coming to the end of the psychology section. Rumarj has written about the sixth chapter that in this chapter Krishna explains Dhyana Yoga, uh, 
meditation, stressing the physical and psychic aspects of spiritual practice, culminating in an emphasis on bhakti yoga, the yoga of loving devotion that Krishna holds most dear. So Krishna will go through different um, things that he wants Arjun to be, dutiful, selfless, wise, renounced, competent in meditation, but above all devoted to him and thereby compassionate to all. So in this chapter, Krishna talks about the self-controlled yogi. And when I first read the Gita, I had already met the devotees. So I, I kind of thought that these chapters that felt like they weren't dealing with bhakti directly, but with other paths of yoga, uh, I thought they didn't really apply to us, that these were things that someone who practicing Ashtanga yoga, for instance, should, should study. But the fact is that in chapter six, Krishna doesn't stop at quieting the mind. Plus that quieting the mind really makes sense for us to study as well. It really makes it easier for us to focus on our bhakti practice. So none of these, uh, none of the chapters in, in the Gita should be, could be, can be neglected. Some parts of, the, of yoga, of course, focus on peace and quiet. Uh, as bhakti yogis, we want more. We want to go further than just to that place of peace and quiet. We want to uh, feel that peaceful mind by something positive, by joyful service to Krishna and other living beings. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur has put this really nicely in his song, Sri Nagar Kirta. Jiva doya Krishna nam sarva dharma sara. The essence of all forms of religion is to show compassion upon all living beings and chant the holy names of Krishna. I'm going to come back to the theme of all living beings in a moment. I really like how, uh, how Bhaktivinoda Thakur uh, lifts it up here as, as one of the main focuses of, uh, for us as devotees. All living beings, seeing all living beings as a uh, as Krishna's, parts of Krishna, Krishna's property, you could also say. When you study the Gita, you quickly notice that uh, Krishna is repeating some of his most important instructions several times in different chapters of the book, sort of developing on, on these central themes. Surrender to me, my dear friend, even if it's hard for you to control your mind, I'll help you. This kind of great promise keeps popping up all throughout the book. And this is also where we're going to end up in chapter six, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're gonna get there soon enough. So in the beginning of, uh, of the chapter in verse six, Krishna makes an important point about the mind. Banhur atmatmanastasya yenatmaivatmana jita. Anatmanastu satrutve vartetatmaiva satruvat. For one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends, 
but for one who has not conquered the mind, it acts like one's enemy. What I really like about the Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy is that it's so practical. The world is a messy place, and so is my head most of the time. But in the Gita, Krishna always gives you a simplified alternative so that you can still somehow stick to your practice. In the 12th chapter of the Gita, for instance, Krishna goes through different levels of devotion. If you can't do this, do at least that. If you can't even do that, at least try to think of Krishna. Try to offer something to Krishna somehow or other. In a recent uh, questions and answers Sunday session, Guru Maharaj quoted this really sweet advice given by Rupa Goswami in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Tasmat kenapi upayana manaha Krishna nivesayat. Somehow or other, one should engage in Krishna consciousness, fix one's mind on Krishna. Somehow or other. This verse is originally from the seventh canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, where we hear about Pralad Maharaj, who certainly was dealing with some stuff that makes, makes our everyday struggles seem just laughable in comparison. But somehow or other, he could fix his mind on Krishna. And so can we, in our own way, on our own level, in, in proportion to our, our stage, uh, the stage that we're in on our spiritual journey. In our tradition, very few things are evil as such and would need to be given up completely. We do have some guidelines for things we should avoid, but the tradition acknowledges that we're in the middle of this epic disaster called Kali Yuga and trying to do our best under very difficult circumstances. So the mind is one of the things that isn't good or bad per se. Uh, it's something we can use in Krishna's service instead of having to try to somehow shut it down completely to become like some kind of an emotionless robot. The mind can actually be our best friend as Krishna promises in this verse, like a peaceful early summer's day, riding our bikes by the sea where the sun is warming us but a gentle breeze is keeping the mosquitoes away. I could have done a whole talk on all the bugs we've encountered on our trips, but that'll have to wait for some other time. Moving on to the following verse, the seventh verse of the chapter. Jitatmanaha prasantasya paramatma samahita sitosna sukha dukhesu manayo. A person who has conquered the mind and is thus peaceful is poised in realization of the Supreme Soul. Heat and cold, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor are all the same to her. In the fifth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, we learn about the great devotee Jad Bharat, who had solved all his material problems by resigning from all social conventions and letting people think that he was completely out of his mind. It said in chapter 9, verse 10, that he didn't care for winter or summer, wind or rain, and he never covered his body at any time. It really feels like he's the embodiment of what's described here in this Gita verse. Heat and cold, pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor are all the same to him. So he had 
attained a level of inner peace that allowed him to disregard any kind of extreme weather conditions. He was completely uninterested in honor and dishonor, which is another level of yogic perfection that I can't say that I would have mastered yet. I have learned, though, that pursuing honor is a great way of ruining one's peace of mind on a cycling trip. Any fame attained in the field of sports and adventure will be very short-lived, as someone will always be faster and stronger. Or, as in the case of the Finnish man who recently rode by himself across the Atlantic, thinking he was the first one to complete this epic journey, You'll find out when you arrive that there have actually been several others who have done it before. He was very disappointed. He's planning to row back now, eastwards across the Atlantic. But I fear that lasting happiness isn't going to be found on the Atlantic in that direction either. Ideally, we should be cycling, rowing, paddling, just for cycling's sake, for the sake of the movement. And remember that health and fame and whether, whatever comes with us are just side effects that won't last. Just like in spiritual practice, we're, we should focus on doing bhakti for bhakti's sake. If we're born in our next life in a beautiful body, in a family of beautiful saintly devotees, as described in uh, verse 41 of the sixth chapter of the Gita, then we can accept that as a nice bonus, but that shouldn't be what we were uh, striving for in our practice. The next verse I've picked is the ninth verse of uh, chapter six. Suhrin mitrari udasina madhyasta dvesya pandusu the superlative yogi is one who looks equally on a close friend, an associate, and an enemy, and who is thus equal in his dealings with everyone, be they saints or sinners. On our trips with Kamalaksha and I, we've had so many opportunities to experience the kindness of strangers. We've traveled to many places that different people have warned us about for different reasons. You're going to Russia. You'll get killed there for sure. You're going to the US. They all hate cyclists and they'll shoot you down right, right there on the road. It's funny how it depends on the person you talk to where the greatest dangers are, where the biggest bike haters of the world reside. I have to admit, I've also had my prejudices about various people and places. But what we've experienced has been the opposite. People have generously invited us to their home, shared food and water with, with us in the desert, offered us rides when our bikes have broken down, and in some cases even donated money to cover our expenses. They've treated us like family, beautifully exemplifying the mood described in these words. Verse 16, Nati asnatas tu yogosti, natsai kantam anastanaha, natsati svapna silasya, jagratanaiva charyuna. 
Oh, Arjun, yoga is not attained by eating too much or by eating too little. Nor is it for those habituated to sleeping too much or sleeping too little. Spending time in nature, in constant gentle movement, is not just calming for the mind, but also for the body. We find a natural rhythm of eating and sleeping, which can be difficult to manage in the city when you're working by a computer. I feel most balanced when I'm on the road. As strange as it may sound, because when we exert the body, the mind and senses become so much easier to handle, even though they're con constantly challenged by the surroundings. The winter months that I spend indoors create all kinds of mental anguish and bodily discomfort, which disappears when I escape from the permanent structures and go live in a tent instead. But this verse is also really nice to remember when we are stuck at work, stuck in the city, stuck by the computer. As we often have a tendency to gravitate towards extremes in our habits or in our practice. Cycling for half an hour every day is way better than doing nothing all winter long and then going on a big trip unprepared. I know because I've tried. A lot of times I've thought that we could benefit from taking the practical wisdom and experience we have from physical practice. Uh, everyone knows that you, you shouldn't go run a marathon without training, that you shouldn't go on a cycling trip without testing your, doing like a test packing of your bags before to see if your, all your gear fits, uh, to see if, if your bike's even rideable. So we have all this experience from physical practice, and I, I've often thought that we should take that and apply that to spiritual practice as well. Somehow we, we think that, seem to think that spiritual, in spiritual practice, we can just kind of take these huge leaps and kind of turn overnight into the Ironman triathlon uh, master athlete, uh, while we'd never expect that. Uh, with physical practices. In that sense, it can also be useful for bhakti yoga to, to practice asanas, to, to practice ashtanga yoga, for instance, or other physical yogic activities, so to speak, to see how we also need to work through repetition over several years, decades, lifetimes to achieve the more challenging poses. Somehow it seems to be easier for, for me to accept that, that in this lifetime I might not be able to reach some of those more challenging poses than to accept that, that I won't become a pure bhakti yogi in one lifetime. In verse 19, Krishna says, Yata yogam A yogi whose mind is controlled and situated in yoga is like an unflickering lamp in a windless place. This verse feels to me like it's describing something completely beyond this world. 
When have you ever seen a lamp that didn't flicker at all? A flame, I mean. Or when have you ever been in a completely windless place, unless it was some kind of a scientific laboratory in a vacuum? But I was thinking that maybe that's the point here, that, that a yogi whose mind is fully controlled isn't sort of bound by these uh, laws of uh, physical nature anymore. The limitations of this world. For that person, there's no more pain or discomfort or difficulty, no more flickering or wind. But until we, we get there, some wind will always be there. In verse 30, Krishna makes a great promise to Arjuna and all his devotees. Yomampasyati sarvatra sarvamchamaye pasyati tasyahamna pranasham satchamena pranasyati. For she who sees me everywhere and sees all things in me, I am never lost, nor is she ever lost to me. This is a wonderful promise. And a beautiful attitude for us to develop when we meet different creatures, small, big, small and big. Some of them are cute and cuddly. Some are blood-sucking beasts. Some feel like long-lost friends. And some will almost push you off the road with their big, expensive, usually German-made car. How could one de develop kindness towards everyone? On the road, I've conducted this experiment of trying to see something good in everyone. It can really be hard. I tend to get really mad, regardless of whether I'm cycling or driving a car myself at, at drivers sometimes, and, and trying to turn that attitude around and think of something good. Think that that huge car that was going way too fast, like maybe it's someone who's in a hurry to pick up their kid and the kid's friends to take them to a fun, I don't know, hobby, activity, whatever. Maybe they're driving so fast to serve someone. Maybe they got the really big car so that they could serve others by giving their rides to places. And maybe it wasn't for the point of showing off or scaring cyclists, but for the sake of service. Krishna is, after all, in everyone's heart. In some cases, it's hard to observe him, but, but we should, at least on a theoretical level, try to appreciate that Krishna is there. You can try this. Uh, I almost feel like it's a game next time you're watching the news or out in traffic. See how... See you, how it works for you if you can find something nice to think of about everyone. The author and author Marilyn Robinson, whose books I really like, speaks really passionately about different uh, worldviews, different ways of viewing other living beings. In her book, When I Was a Child, I Read Books. It's a collection of essays, and in one of them, she writes about 
how many people today take granted take for granted that we're these savage beasts that are just barely controlled by the society, just barely restraining our lower impulses. And she uh, writes about how this kind of a grim worldview was really popularized by Darwin and Freud. She speaks about Freud especially extensively in the essay and, and how this idea of, of us uh, as being inherently evil has become incredibly widespread. But as she very eloquently points out, religion and spirituality, the idea that we are in fact spirit souls has flourished throughout the times. Uh, it's, it hasn't been weeded out by evolution. So you could think that there's some inherent need for that, that, that it is somehow so deeply rooted in us to, to feel that we are something special, that we are something more than just, the, just our senses and mind. Uh, and that made me really think of how uh, the 12th, uh, sorry, uh, 16th chapter of the Gita where Krishna talks about the divine and demoniac or godly and ungodly natures. There are these descriptions of un ungodly, uh, the ungodly worldview that really sound to me like how Freud described um, human psychology. And I would hope that in the future, sort of in the larger scale of things, the, that type of a view of us and our motives in life would be forgotten and a more spiritually based conception of human nature would conquer. And I do in fact believe that it will because like Marilyn Robinson says, it's something that's been with us forever and ever. I'm of course paraphrasing here. Um, I highly recommend her books to, uh, to everyone who, who wonders about the role of religion in the modern world. Moving on to verse 38, Arjun is concerned. Kachin nobhaya vibrastas chinna bram ivanasyati apratista mahabaho vimudho brahmanapati. O oh, mighty armed, is she not lost in her pursuit of transcendence like a ribbon cloud with no solid footing in either world? Speaking about the unsuccessful yogi. Like a ribbon cloud, there's no way we could catch a cloud drifting in the sky. And all these Nature metaphors seem to paint a picture of the mind as an extremely powerful force of nature. I've experienced it over and over again. When the mind gets out of control, at worst, it's like a thunderstorm. It feels like you just have to take cover and hope it'll pass quickly. There are several instances, of course, in the Gita where Arjun is having doubts. 
which is kind of sweet because Krishna is personally instructing him. Krishna is literally standing next to him and yet he doubts. It's, it's also a comforting thought to me that it's no wonder that we're having doubts because even though, like I said, Krishna is within us, we don't always feel and see his presence the same way that Arjun could in a very tangible way. Arjun, of course, brings his doubts to Krishna over and over again, as we should also do with Krishna's representatives, our teachers and, and uh, God siblings and devotee friends. We should approach them in a mood of listening and learning. Sometimes the answers will, of course, take some time to digest. Sometimes we don't agree with everything our teacher or friend tells us. Maybe we see things differently or we feel that they don't know the whole story, in which case perhaps there's need for some uh, discussion, further discussion on the theme. But it's important that we're patient, like Arjuna is asking and listening digesting what, what Krishna tells him. We need to trust that with time, we might understand the advice that we get the other devotees vision better, better. Controlling the mind is such a huge task that there are no quick and easy solutions. But as Krishna reminds us at the end of chapter six, we're not expected to do this alone. Yoginama pisarvesam margatenanta ratmana stradhavan bajateyomam same yukta tamamata. Of all yogis, she who abides in me with full faith, worshipping me in devotion, is most intimately united with me and considered the best of all. Here was thinking, I feel that Krishna seems to refer to one of the most famous verses at the end of the entire book giving a hint of where all this is going. I am, of course, talking about verse uh, 1865. Fix your mind on me, be my devotee, sacrifice for me, offer obeisance unto me. In this way you will surely come to me. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. So like I said, these very important instructions keep coming up over and over again. And, and at the end of uh, the sixth chapter, we're then moving on to, to the section of the Gita that talks more directly about Bhakti. In his commentary, Srila Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur says something very inspiring about uh, this verse. This verse, a concise statement of bhakti, which will be defined in the middle six chapters, is the thread-like ornament on the neck of the devotees. The first chapter introduces the dialogue in the Gita, the second, third, and fourth chapters deal with Nishkama Karma, the fifth deals with Jan, and the sixth with Ashtanga Yoga. But the main topic of the first six chapters is Karma Yoga. And, uh, and at the end here, 
bhakti yoga. And I felt that that this this statement really feels like you get inspired to dive into the following six chapters to uh, to let Krishna uh, define bhakti more carefully, which of course is uh, I think a nice uh, point of the commentator to make to to kind of invite the reader to to continue reading. So like I said in the beginning, I often feel disappointed with myself when I can't control my mind in rain and headwind, when I experience pain and discomfort, when I'm not the yogi with the unflickering uh, mind control. But it's also good to know that that kind of unflickering mind isn't even something anyone would expect from someone was at this stage on their bhakti journey. It's much later at the stage of Nishta we're going to be happily pedaling in warm weather and tailwind. Until then, we will experience flat tires and rainstorms. So I've come to think that maybe I have to look at the bigger picture to sort of um, zoom out from my temporary lack of faith in the process, from my temporary um, disappointments and uh, failures. If I look at who I was before I started practicing bhakti all those years ago, like how did my mind look back then? Uh, I see a person who was angry at God and bitter at the world, definitely saw other living beings as, as some kind of uh, aggressive beasts that we should look out for kind of a eat or get eaten type of a worldview. And when I think of my life today, uh, what it's become uh, through all these years of practice, I think it's going to be 25 years this year since I first started practicing in my, in my simple way, but still. And when I think of these years and who I'm now, I feel that I've been given so much, that I've been so very fortunate. And I am a different person than I was back then. I see myself and the world and other living beings differently. Certainly my so-called difficulties haven't been that significant. Many of them have been self-induced, like choosing to cycle in the mosquito-ridden boreal forests of the northern hemisphere. But I have struggled, as everyone does in their world, in their own way, in their own terms. And for all of us, our own struggles are real. But still, I've never fully given up my spiritual practice. I've always been able to pick up and continue where I left off. And I've never blamed Krishna for my problems. So I have come pretty far from the person troubled by their mind and full of anger towards God and other living beings. So maybe, maybe that's a pretty great achievement too, even though it isn't quite the super yogi uh, 
described in the Gita. Not quite yet. And of course, I can only pray that when real difficulties will eventually come, as they always do, with old age, if not sooner, that I'll still be able to keep practicing, that I won't give up my faith in Krishna even, even when things will get really hard. My mind probably still won't be the unflickering flame, but at least I'm hoping it won't be like a tornado blowing out my whole sadhana. So these were the thoughts that I had prepared for today. And uh, thank you all for listening. I was hoping you might have, have some questions or comments, some thoughts of your own on the theme of the mind and why not cycling as well. So feel free to, uh, to share either through the chat or by turning on your microphone. Or if anyone has any thoughts later on, you can always write them to the YouTube comments and I'll make sure to come back and check them later on. Okay, we have a question in the chat from Stradhadasi. Thank you for an inspiring class. Thank you. If you were to go on a big cycling tour again, what would be different after you have learned of Krishna's promising words? That's a nice question. The different trips have certainly been a learning process. And, and I think after each journey, I've, when I reread the Gira again, I notice new things, I realize new things that I haven't seen there before. I think moderation is something that, that I've really learned and that I hope that I'll be able to um, practice more in the future when I go on new trips. Those verses about uh, that I didn't quote today about being on a seat that's not too high and not too low or the one I mentioned about not sleeping too much or too little or not eating too much or too little. I have the kind of a mind that wants to do great incredible things and it's hard for me to do steady little things every day and and I've had the experience of taking on challenges that were too much for me to handle and taking on practices that I couldn't keep up so so that's something that I I hope that I I could keep in mind next time I go to plan the trip even beforehand so that that there's enough but not too much challenge
Hei, Haribol. Haribol. Hey, I just wanted to say thank you for your inspiring class. And uh, there, were, <laughs> there were a couple of things that I really liked. Like, for example, when you talked about um, this um, kind of uh, meditation exercise, how you are trying to kind of see something good in every person and, um, and kind of... Uh, have this uh, state of mind, like uh, like seeing Krishna everywhere and in in everyone. So I I think I will uh, take that one from this class as kind of a um, encouragement for myself as well. And also I I really liked um, when you talked about um, um, kind of like seeing progress in yourself or like um, like seeing how how this process has changed you as a human being. Because I think it's very important um, when we're reaching for such high ideals, it's, it, it can, we, like sometimes um, um, we might not see the steps we are actually taking and, uh, and, the, and, and like, um, um, like the power of the ideal is really working in us and changing us. So, I think it's uh, good also to kind of stop and uh, also be thankful for those things that are are happening in our lives. So that was kind of ray of hope for me today. So thank you also for that, Ari. Thank you. It's a really nice uh, that you that you brought that up. I uh, I guess when we first became devotees, we were young and. And we thought that, you know, when we'll be in our 40s, first off, we'll be super old, but we'll also be super spiritual. Because for, like, I was a teenager when I first started practicing bhakti. So, so of course, like, imagining myself at 44, where I'm now, I would have thought that, that you know, a person that old isn't going to even be interested in you know, sense gratification anymore because what is there left for them to enjoy? And now, you know, I'm in my 40s and I don't feel that much older or uh, that much less interested in fun things, enjoying life. So maybe that's why we sometimes feel that we haven't progressed because of our idea of where we would have come in these years is so absurd kind of so exaggerated unrealistic but if we take an honest look at it this is maybe one of those cases where you know how they say that that we should be kinder to ourselves that if a friend was describing their struggles would we judge them the same way that we judge ourselves so maybe if we try to look at our progress as we would look at someone else's maybe we can maybe it can be easier for us to appreciate how far we've actually come and maybe yeah i i'm definitely imagining now that when i'm really old like in my 80s then i'll be really spiritual but 
maybe we also have to acknowledge that it's a pretty big process. It's a pretty high ideal we're striving for. So, you know, maybe one lifetime just isn't enough. Maybe it'll take, we have to look, look at it from a bigger perspective. Any other thoughts? Well, thank you once again for listening and thanks for your kind comments and questions. And uh, I hope to see you again on Zoom and in also in real in the real world of course and uh, hope to continue the discussion either online or face to face thank you so much hari hari